0: Good morning, everyone. Happy Father's Day. My name is Vince. I'm one of the pastors here at High Point Church. I'm actually the kids' pastor. So all those kids we watched File Out before are all going to the programming we've prepared on the other side of the church. If you're a parent and you're new here, I would love to meet you and get to know you a little bit after the service. And we're so glad that you're here. Before we start the sermon, we are going to do our Bible memory verse. This whole year, for each set of sermons that we do on Sunday mornings, we've been trying to memorize the verse together as a community, and this is the second week of this series in 1 Samuel, so we're going to do our verse together to hold everybody accountable. If you're new here, you had no idea this was coming, so no shame at all for not knowing the verse yet, and since this is the second week, I actually don't know the verse yet either, so no shame for me either, but let's... um. Let's just read it together today. Next week, they're going to remove some of the words to see if we can do it without, with some of the words missing. So let's just read it today. And actually, let's go old school and stand up and read God's word together. This is what they did back in the olden days. Some of you grew up with this. And we're going to do uh, what we do in kids ministry, which is where I count it off. And then we read together. So here we go. One, two, three. Then all the people of Israel turned back to the Lord. So Samuel said to all the Israelites, If you are returning to the Lord with all your hearts, then rid yourselves of the foreign gods and Ashtoreths and commit yourself to the Lord and serve him only. He will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the Israelites put away their Baals and Ashtoreth and serve the Lord only. Great job. Great job. You go ahead and have a seat. The story we're going to look at today from 1 Samuel is on page 380 in the Bible in the back of the pew in front of you. If you didn't bring a Bible, you're totally welcome to use one of those Bibles, or if you have an app on your phone, that's totally fine too, or we're going to have all the verses up on the screen. So you can totally look up there as well. Also, just so you know, I have a screen right there, which some of you might never have known about. So as you watch me reading these passages, do not be fooled into thinking I am more holy than I am and I have them all memorized. I'm just reading them from the back of the screen up there. You all good? All right. Good. So, this book of 1 Samuel, if you've never been to church before, you've probably never heard of this book. It's part of the Bible, and even if you've never heard of it, you have probably heard one of the main stories from it, which is the David and Goliath story. We're going through the whole book this summer, so we are going to hit David and Goliath this summer. It's a big deal, and if you don't normally come to church and you want to hear the David and Goliath story, you can come all summer, and if you come all summer, you'll hear it. (laughs) I'm not going to tell you which Sunday because I want you to actually come and find out and then hopefully stay afterwards. The story we're going to talk about today is a less well-known story, and it's the story of Eli and his two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. Great names for soon-to-be parents. You can pick one of these. (laughs) Just kidding, actually. Especially after you hear the story, you're going to be like, no way! So I love this story we're about to see because... Eli found himself in a conflict that all of us face at one point or another. If you are brand new to church today and you've just started following Jesus or you're not even sure if you want to follow Jesus yet, this is a conflict that you are going to face or probably are facing right now. If you've been walking with Jesus for 50, 60, 70 years, you have definitely lived through this conflict and you are probably going to live through it again. And that's the conflict between God and and people, God and a person, where you find yourself in between making God happy or making a person happy, having a person's approval or having God's approval, doing what God wants you to do or doing what a person wants you to do. Now this doesn't happen all the time. In fact, one of the great things about following God is that a lot of times this all works in perfect harmony. Your wife wants you to come home and care about her and spend time with her and help her make dinner and that whole thing. And God wants the same things. He wants you to go home and care about your wife and love her and it's perfect harmony. No conflict. Your boss wants you to show up, work hard, be productive. You know what God wants you to do at work? Show up, work hard, be productive. Same things. No conflict. Your kids want you to come home and spend time with them. God wants you to go home and spend time With your kids, if you're maybe a little younger, in your 20s, you're here looking for friendship and community, maybe a spouse. It's happened before here, just saying. I met my wife here, actually. And God's great with all of that. He says, look for friends, look for community, look for a spouse. A lot of times, there's no conflict. And oftentimes, when you start following God, your relationships get easier because God has set up a great system for us to love each other. But sooner or later, there will be conflict where God wants one thing from you and a person wants a very different thing. If you're here today and you are new to church, there's probably someone very close to you who might not even want you here. That even though you're just exploring a relationship with Jesus, there's someone who doesn't believe in Jesus and they do not want you starting to believe in Jesus and do not want you going to do not want you going to church and you have to pick between making God happy because if there is a God he probably wants you here or making that person happy who does not want you here some of you too might be um, you might not know that we know this as pastors but we know that some of you have one foot in the church world and one foot still in the party world you know what I'm saying we know that you're not fooling us and some of you you know you're fully in the party world and you're dipping your toe in the church world some of you are in the church world still dipping your toe in the party world you know what I'm talking about and if you go all in and leave the lifestyle that you know God wants you to leave you're gonna frustrate a lot of people and there's gonna be people that want you back in that world and back in that community and you're forced between the group of people that you spend a lot of your time with and God who wants you out of that lifestyle and out of that world It might be your boss. That your boss wants you spending a certain amount of hours at work, and you know that God wants you spending fewer hours at work and more time with your family, and you've got to choose between making your boss happy or making God happy. Conflict. There might be a co-worker or a boss or maybe an employee that you could make really happy by doing something at work that God does not want you to do. Something... Immoral or illegal or something against the values of God's kingdom. And you have to choose between making that person happy, getting that person's approval, or making God happy and having God's approval. For some of you, it might be a GF or a BF. Those are two acronyms I made up to stand for girlfriend and boyfriend. And you know... That God's plan for marriage is that all the physical stuff, all the sexual stuff gets saved until you're married. But you know you could make the person that you're dating or in a relationship with very happy by doing these things. And you have to choose between making that person you're dating happy or making God happy. Some of you are in a more serious relationship. Maybe you're engaged and you're engaged to somebody who is not as serious about following God as you are or maybe doesn't follow God at all and you have to decide, am I going to end up with this person that God does not want me to end up with or not? You got a conflict between that person you're in a serious relationship with or God. Conflict. For some of you, it's an imaginary person. I don't mean like you need a psychiatrist. (laughs) But this is in some ways one of the most serious ways this can work is that someone or a group of people in your past have planted a voice in your head. And it might be a collective people, you might not even know who it was, but there's a voice in your head that's always telling you, you need to look a certain way, you need to achieve a certain standard of living, you need to have some kind of exciting life, you need to make this much money, whatever it is, you need to live up to some standard. That voice is always going in your head and God actually doesn't really care about those things. And you've got to choose between this voice that says, if you do all these things, I'll be happy, even though it's never satisfied, or... God, who says, you need to stop listening to that voice. Sooner or later, every one of us will come into a situation where we've got to pick between these. Some of you might be a parent that has a very distinct plan for your life, and your parents' plan for your life and God's plan for your life are two different plans, and you need to decide, am I going to make my parent happy, my mom happy, my dad happy, or am I going to make God happy about what I do with the course of my life? There's a conflict there. We're all going to face this sooner or later. This conflict, and I say this gently. This, this whole sermon is going to be a little like calling you to action, but I want you to know I know that it is not easy. The more you care about this person's happiness, the more difficult it becomes because you don't want to hurt somebody that you care about, and that feels very right to not want to hurt somebody. The more you want that person's approval, the more you want them to think highly of you or respect you, the harder it is to choose God in the conflict between God and that person. So the story we're going to look at today is about a guy named Eli who finds himself in that exact conflict where he's choosing between God and his two sons. Before we go to the story, I want to catch you up from last week if you were gone. And I brought some emojis. You all know what emojis are? I see some people doing this. Yes, we love emojis. It's a, it's a youth, newfangled, technical thing. You'll see what I mean in a second. So this is what happened last week. This was the first week of this series. So if this is your first time here, you're not coming in at a bad spot at all. Last week, we started with two people, Hannah and Eli. Eli is the guy we're going to talk about today. He is the priest over all God's people of Israel a long time ago, 3,000 years ago, roughly. He has spiritual authority, maybe like the Pope of the Catholic Church, or maybe like Nick Gibson of High Point, our lead pastor. Maybe, some of you might think. He's over all of that, and he also has political authority. At the time, the people of Israel don't have a king. God is supposed to be their king, and so he's the acting political authority. He has wealth and power and God has blessed him with two sons and he's in the temple. And Hannah shows up weeping. There's our first emoji, that's what an emoji is in case you were wondering. She's weeping and she's praying, but she's praying without making any sound, just moving her mouth. And Eli sees her and says, you've drank too much. He thinks that she's drunk and so he calls her out, which is a good moment for us to see what kind of person Eli is. That Eli wants the best for Hannah. He wants her free of the bottle And walking with God and morally pure. And Hannah says, Eli, I'm not drinking. I'm praying. I'm praying to God because I want a son. And God has not given me a son. I don't know if that's the high five one or the praying one. I like it as the praying one. So that's what we're going to do today. Eli goes, let me get in on this and starts praying with her. Meanwhile, Hannah has cut a deal with God and says, Okay, God, if you give me a son, I am going to give that son to you to serve you for his entire life. God blesses Hannah with the son. He listens to the prayers of both Hannah and Eli. And Hannah makes good on her promise and gives the son Samuel to Eli to raise as a priest. That's where our story starts. We've got Eli, ruler, spiritual authority. He's got Samuel, this adopted child kind of a surrogate father thing that he's training to be a priest. We're going to see him a lot more throughout this series. He's the guy the book is named after. And then we've got his own sons, Hophni and Phinehas, his blood children. Here's how the conflict begins. First Samuel chapter 2, page 380. Eli's sons were scoundrels. They had no regard for the Lord. So, like father, not so much like son. Everything that we've seen of Eli seems that he is a good ruler, a good priest, a good leader for the people of Israel. His sons have not followed in his footsteps. Here's what they were doing. Now, it was the practice of the priests, stay with me at this part because it is going to seem a little tedious and it has forks and some weird items in it, but you'll see how this shows how much his sons were scoundrels. It was the practice of the priest that whenever any of the people offered a sacrifice, the priest's servant would come with a three-pronged fork in his hand while the meat was being boiled and would plunge the fork into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. So at the time, just like we saw before, that people brought an offering of money to give to God's work here at this church. At the time, people would bring an offering of meat. It was expensive and a rare commodity. And they would bring it to the temple to give to God. So they'd walk in and then the servant of one of the priests would come. They'd put the meat in a pot and then the priest servant would jam his fork in there, lift up a piece of meat... Then, whatever the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is how they treated all the Israelites who came to Shiloh. So this sounds a little goofy, but this is a good system God has set up. The priests are serving in the temple all day long, every day. They can't go raise crops. They can't have fields or cattle or anything like that. So God provided a way for the priests to have food. But he he knows God knew that, sometimes people can get greedy. Religious people notwithstanding. Religious leaders notwithstanding. No offense to my people. <laughs> but so God says, the priest should eat what their servant gets when they stick a fork in there and pull up meat. And that's it. Priesters can't be choosers. <laughs> Eli, Eli's sons, Hofty and Phinehas, do not like... This system, they become selfish and greedy and corrupt over time. Here's what they say: even before the fat was burned, the priest's servant, so the servant of Hophni and Phileas, would come and say to the person who was sacrificing the meat, the person bringing the meat, give the priest some meat to roast. So these guys don't want boiled meat; they want it off the barbecue, which you know we understand, but it's against what God has set up. He won't accept boiled from meat from you, but only raw. If the person said to him, let the fat be burned first and then take whatever you want, the servant would answer, no, hand it over now. If you don't, I'll take it by force. So Hophni and Phinehas have their servant going to the people, bringing the meat in, taking exactly what the priests want so they can roast it instead of boil it. And if the people say, no, this is not God's plan. This is not what we want to do. They threaten them and take it anyways. Can you imagine if you walked into High Point and someone was threatening you at the door, demanding things from you? That's what was going on at the church. It wasn't the church, but at the temple at the time. So... The sin of the young men, obviously, was very great in the Lord's sight. For they were treating the Lord's offering with contempt. God wants this changed. God wants this fixed. God wants there to be a place of purity where people can come to him. He cares about people who are in need of forgiveness coming to him for forgiveness. He wants to create a group of people that love each other and love him, and he does not like when their leaders carry themselves this way because God loves people. He loves people. So he does not like what these two sons are doing. Now, Eli, the dad, was, who was very old, heard about everything his sons were doing to all Israel, and it gets worse, how they slept with the women who served at the t- entrance to the tent of meeting. So they're turning the temple into a house of meat thieves and also a brothel. It's a bad situation, one that God does not like. So Eli finds himself we don't we're not in this exact situation all the time, you know or something this extreme, but we are in situations so similar to this where we find ourselves in a conflict between what God wants and what a person wants. That's where Eli is. He's down there at the bottom and he's got his two sons in the upper right. God wants the situation fixed. God wants order restored, justice restored, goodness restored to his people, and Hophni and Phinehas are fully happy to continue doing what they're doing. They're scoundrels. They have no care for the Lord. And Eli cares about both. These are his sons. What is he going to do? He doesn't want to bring shame on them. He doesn't know exactly what he can do, and he doesn't want to hurt his sons. They're his own sons. Some of you have seen, um, if I asked all the business people to raise their hands, if you've ever seen a family business go go bad, I would imagine nearly everyone would say they have. And I'm not saying family businesses are always bad, but most of you in the business world have seen this situation go bad where there's Uh, parent and children working together and the corruption and the greed and the doing things that would never fly otherwise happen. So before we're too rough on Eli, we got to know that oftentimes in these situations, parents so side with their children, not always, but so often side with their children and have no care for what anyone else thinks. This is the conflict Eli finds himself in. It's the same conflict we find ourselves in. And what we're about to see is that Eli totally royally messes it up. He totally messes it up. But he messes it up in the way that so often we do. So as we look at how he handles it, we can learn from his mistakes. And I don't, the the story doesn't really show whether or not Eli realized how he had messed it up. He may not even have realized. And I know from just knowing people and seeing them go through very difficult things, oftentimes people don't even realize how they have messed this up and how they've picked God and what a, or picked a person and what a person wants over God and what God wants. But we can learn from this how Eli messed it up. Here's what Eli did. So Eli, so he, Eli, the dad, said to them his two sons, why do you do such things? I hear from all the people about these wicked deeds of yours. From the looks of this, does it seem like Eli is bothered about what they're doing? Yes or no? Yes, right? His heart is fully in line with God's heart. He go, God's heart, he goes straight to his sons and he says, what you are doing is wicked. This is totally wrong. His heart is in line with God's heart. Then he goes on. No, my sons, the report I hear spreading among the Lord's people is not good. Then he lays a theological beat down on them because he's a priest and he's been trained and he knows the Bible and he knows the truth. He His thinking is right on just like many of you you've been around church and you know what scripture teaches and you know all the right answers. He says this, if one person sins against another, talking to his sons, God may mediate for the offender. Meaning if two people get into a fight, God may come in between them and bring reconciliation. But he says, but if anyone sins against the Lord, who will intercede? For them. So he says, You guys are not going against a person. You are going straight against God. How do you think that's going to go? Whose side was Eli's mind on? God's, right? His heart is aligned with God's heart, his mind is aligned with God's mind. He knows the truth. His sons, however, did not listen to their father's rebuke. At which point we may say, well, maybe the way Eli messed this whole thing up is that he just didn't say it strong enough. He didn't bring it strong enough, you know. His heart was right and his head was right, but maybe he didn't say it strong enough. But look what it says. His sons, however, did not listen to their father's rebuke, for it was the Lord's will to put them to death. Now that's kind of hard to hear. But what this passage is saying is that these guys were so bad they had hurt so many people they had so spit in the face of God and they knew what they were doing was wrong and after chance after chance after chance after chance God said okay that's it I'm gonna bring judgment on these two guys that's bad news for the sons but this is another point in Eli's favor that from every measure it seems like he's putting God first. Whose side does Eli's speech on? Them or God's? God, right? So, what did he do wrong? Think about it. You don't have to shout it out, but think about it. What did he do wrong? So some time goes by, and the boy Samuel continued to grow in stature and in favor with the Lord and with the people. So we don't know exactly how much time goes by, but the, the kid grows up. Samuel, the little boy, grows up somewhat. Now, a man of God came to Eli. A man of God at this point in the story is just a person who has a special connection with God. And in this story, he's coming to Eli with a message from God. This is the moment of truth where we find out how Eli did. Did he choose his sons over God or did he choose God over his sons? Here's what the man of God says. And said to him, said to Eli, this is what the Lord says. Did I not clearly reveal myself to your ancestors' family when they were in Egypt under Pharaoh? So he says, Eli, remember, hundreds of years ago, the story where the Israelites are enslaved in Egypt and the ten plagues, that whole thing that you've maybe heard at some point from the Bible, Moses, that whole story, those were Eli's ancestors. And he says, Eli, don't you remember, don't you know your own history that I came to your ancestors and showed them who I was? At which point Eli would have said, yes, yes you did. Then he goes on, he says, I chose your ancestor out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar, to burn incense and to wear an ephod in my presence. He says... We took all those slaves, God took all those slaves, and he brought them into freedom, but then from that group, he picked a special group to be the religious leaders, to be the spiritual leaders. Isn't that your ancestor, Eli? And Eli says, yep, that is my ancestor. Then he says this, he brings his attention to the very thing that the conflict was over a few years before. I also gave your ancestor's family all the food offerings presented by the Israelites." this point, Eli might have started to, to sweat a little bit or something like that. And here's what he says. Why do you scorn my sacrifice and offering that I prescribed for my dwelling? Why do you scorn my sacrifice and offering that I prescribed for my dwelling? At which point we say, he didn't. He tried to set it right. His heart was in the right place. His head was in the right place. His speech was in the right place. What did he do wrong? Well, look what he says. By fattening yourselves on the choice parts of every offering made by the people of Israel. That word fattening is a present tense word meaning nothing changed. He said all the stuff. He felt all the right stuff. He thought all the right stuff. He knew the truth and nothing changed and in fact he has started eating the stolen meat again with his sons. So the man of God just tells Eli that everything's going to go bad. God's going to bring judgment on his family. He wants Eli to know that God is serious about it. And he knows that someday God is going to strike his two sons dead. And he doesn't want Eli to doubt whether it was God's doing or not. So he says, here's how you're going to know that God is bringing judgment on your family. He says, what happens to your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, will be a sign to you. They will both die on the same day. then He reveals the thing that Eli missed. And this is the thing that we so often miss. We so often confuse when there's a conflict between God and people. This is the thing that we so often mess up. Here's what he says. He says, once you're gone, once your family's gone, once your kids are gone, here's what God's going to do. He says, God is going to do this. God will say, I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who will, everybody say that word, do. According to what is in my heart and mind. Who will do according to what is in my heart and mind. Eli's heart was connected to God's heart. It was the same as God's heart. His mind was the same as God's mind, but he did not do what was in God's heart. He did not do what was in God's mind. And if there's any doubt about what The man of God is talking about, God sends Samuel, the little boy, to him with a very similar message. God goes to Samuel and he says, Samuel, here's what's up. Samuel, I told Eli that I would judge his family forever because of the sin he knew about. His sons blasphemed God and he failed to restrain them. He rebuked them, but he did not restrain them. What's he saying? He's saying, Eli, you were supposed to just fire them. You were supposed to just get rid of them. You said the right thing, you thought the right thing, your heart was in the right place, but you didn't actually do the doing part. Eli's heart was aligned with God's heart. This is just how we are. We care about the things that God cares about. His line, his mind was aligned with God's mind. We know what's right and wrong. We know the truth. We know the things that God thinks are important or not important. We know how God's value system works. We know all that stuff. Our speech, Eli's speech was aligned with God's speech, just like us. We say all the right things. We say all the truth. But he never did the doing part. That's what the man of God holds him accountable to. He says, I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who will do according to what is in my heart and mind. What Eli learned that day is a thing that so many of us are needing to learn over and over and over again. And that's this, that in a conflict between God and people, it's the doing that makes the difference. It's the doing that makes the difference. If you are in a conflict between what God wants and what a person wants, it's the doing part that makes the difference to God. Eli tried to do what we all try to do. When we're caught in between what God wants and what a person wants, we don't don't always realize it. But this is what we try to do, is that we try to create a compromise. Instead of just going fully with God, we try to create a compromise. And our compromise is the same compromise that Eli tried to do. He said, I'm going to, God knows I agree with him in my mind. God knows I agree with him in my heart. God knows I'm saying the right things. And so often we do that and we think, well, maybe it's cool then with me and God if I still act according to what this person is wanting me to do. And we think that we gain some approval from God, that we're doing what God wants us to do if we're thinking right, or our heart is in the right place, or we're saying the right things. We think maybe that's a good compromise. But in a conflict between God and people, it's the doing that makes the difference. In a conflict between God and people, compromise, when you try to mess with the system, it always brings consequences. It always brings consequences. Just like in the story, it always brings consequences. You know why? Because God is just like you and me. He's a relational being. That's exactly how we are with our relationships. If I go to my wife and I say, Honey, you've been working hard. I'm going to make you a beautiful dinner tonight. That's what I think is important. If I say, you know, this is assuming she's kind of representing God. I say, I know it's important that I make you dinner tonight. And she says, oh, thank you so much. And then during the day, I text her and I say, I'm so excited about dinner tonight. I've got this whole recipe all planned out. And she says, oh, okay, great. And then she walks in the door and I've got candles and I'm sitting in the table. And I say, dinner is served and there's no food. Is she going to say, well, that was a good compromise. (laughs) That was a good compromise. I know you knew it was important to make the dinner. I know you felt it, that you were excited about it. And you even said dinner is served. Just because you didn't do it, it's a good compromise. No, that's not how God works. That's not how we work. Nobody works that way. It's the doing that makes the difference. If you're working somewhere and your boss entrusts to you a million dollars, assuming this boss is kind of representing God, and some other employee comes to you and says, hey, we should steal that million dollars. And you say, ooh, this guy's going to be happy if I steal the million dollars, but my boss is not going to be happy. What should I do? So he says, okay, instead of stealing a million, why don't you just steal like a hundred grand? And you go, okay, so you give him the hundred grand. Then the boss shows up. And he goes, all right, where's my million? And you go, well, I got 900,000 here and I gave this other guy 100,000. That's a good compromise, right? Right? No! The boss is going be what are you doing? You can't do that! God is the same way. He's just like you and me. If there's something he wants you to do and there's something that somebody else wants you to do and they're in conflict, all that matters is the doing part. Here's the thing. This is probably the most important thing I'm going to say this whole morning. In a conflict between God and people, God has lots of grace for your mind and your heart and your speech. Meaning, if you're here, this is the compromise you're tempted to do. And you say, no, I'm going to side with God. Sometimes this is how it feels, that your mind is conflicted. That you're like, I don't even know if this is the right thing to say no to this person and say yes to God. I'm confused on how this thing should work. My heart is torn. Half of my heart is with this person. Half of my heart is with God. And your speech, you're like, I'm actually mad at God right now. But you choose to do, do you know what God calls that? Obedience. God calls that being a Christian. God calls that being someone that cares about God. You can have all sorts of conflict in your heart, in your mind, in your speech. But if you choose to do, that's what makes the difference to God. In a conflict between God and people, it's the doing that makes the difference. It's not about what you know. It's not about how you feel about the situation. It's not about what you say. It's the doing that makes the difference to God. Some of you might say, well, that was Old Testament God. That was pre-Jesus, so he was the tough one. Jesus probably softened this all up. Remember what Jesus said about this? Here's what Jesus said a thousand years later. He goes, apparently that story of Eli and his sons still hasn't registered in people's minds. So Jesus says, let me just break this down for you really simply. He says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. He doesn't say, if you don't hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, you're going to be an average disciple. Or you're going to be a mediocre disciple or a subpar disciple. He says, if you don't hate them, you can't follow me. Now, Jesus doesn't mean we should actually hate them all the time. Jesus, all he talked about was loving people. But Jesus is saying, if there's a conflict between God and even the person who is closest to you, you better get to work on hating that person. Because it's me or nothing. He says, if you want to follow me, that cross better be on your back. It's me or nothing. When you choose to follow Jesus, you give up the right to live for anybody else. But you get... More than you can imagine, you get forgiveness. Forgiveness for every time you've messed this up. Forgiveness for everything you've ever done wrong. Forgiveness for everything you ever will do wrong. Complete and total acceptance by God. That's what you gain when you say, I'm going to only live for one person. I'm only going to live for Jesus. But you give up the right to choose a person over God, to live according to what a person says as opposed to what God says when they're in conflict. There's a conflict we all find ourselves in sooner or later. In a conflict between God and people, it's the doing that makes the difference. You will always regret not doing the doing part. That's how the story ends. And this is such a tragic ending. If you're a cynical person, you're going to just love the ending of this story. It's so terribly tragic. So years go by. Eli grows up and he's still in this compromise. He's still in the conflict between God and his sons. He still hasn't just manned up and kicked them out. There's a battle between the Israelites and the people, the Philistines, who are opposed to them. They go into battle. They lose. Then the Israelites come back and regroup and they say, okay, we just lost that battle. We're going to go fight them again. What are we going to do? So they say, let's get the Ark of the Covenant as in like Raiders of the Lost Ark, that thing, the Ark of the Covenant that's in the Bible. It's a real thing. It was a real thing. And God had to make this beautifully decorated ornate box, and he said, my presence will never leave that box. And anytime the Israelites went into battle, they would win if they had the ark with them. So the Israelites say, okay, let's get the ark. Let's go into battle. Who do they bring? Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons. So Eli is sitting there waiting to hear what happened in the battle. His sons are out there in the battle. They've brought the ark with them What's going to happen? That same day, same day of the battle, a Benjamite ran from the battle line and went to Shiloh with his clothes torn and dust on his head. When he arrived, there was Eli sitting on his chair by the side of the road, watching because his heart feared. And so you would instinctually think he's fearing for his sons. There's been that prophecy against them that God is going to kill them on the same day. Remember when we heard about that? You'd think, well, he picked his sons over God, so he must be fearing for what happens to his sons. But no, because his heart feared for the ark of God. This is the same story that we live. Deep down, you know God is worth it. You know God is worth picking. You know that there's no person that should ever come in God's place. And you never look back on your life and go, wow, I'm so glad I chose to make all these people happy or win the approval of all these people instead of following God and God alone. You never look back and say that. And the same is true that when you make that terribly difficult decision to follow God instead of what a person is asking of you, no matter how hard it is, no matter how messy, no matter how much it takes to clean up whatever mess has been made, you never regret it. You never regret it. Look what happens to Eli. Eli heard the outcry and asked, what is the meaning of this uproar? The man hurried over to Eli who was 98 years old and whose eyes had failed so that he could not see. He told Eli, I have just come from the battle line. I fled from it this very day. Eli asked, what happened, my son? The man who brought the news replied, Israel fled before the Philistines. The army has suffered heavy losses. Also, your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, just like God prophesied. And the ark of God has been captured. Look Look at this. When he mentioned, not the sons, not the battle, when he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell backward off his chair by the side of the gate. His neck was broken and he died. You see this? He lived all that time with his mind still knowing the truth, his heart still being connected to God's heart and feeling what was right and wrong. His speech... Still in line with God, but since he never did the doing part, he died in regret. In a conflict between God and people, it's the doing that makes the difference. And you will always regret not doing the doing. You will never look back and say, I'm glad I chose this person over God. You will always look back and say, I should have chosen God over that person or whatever they asked of me. This is terribly difficult. It is terribly difficult. This means oftentimes a season of heartbreak, difficulty, new challenges, relational tension, loss of finances, people that don't like you. It is terribly difficult, but it is wonderfully freeing. It is wonderfully freeing. When you say, okay, I am only living, clear all the people out from all of that in your decision making and say, I'm only living for one person, the person of Jesus Christ, it is the most freeing moment, the most freeing moment, and your life becomes incredibly simple (laughs) and incredibly good because you're only living for that one person. Lest you think that I have always walked this path, I wanna tell you, my story of this area, because I lived this thing, I lived this story in my own life, in the bad way, in the fact that I messed it up, that I tried to work out a compromise. When God's was on one side, God's will and a person's will, I tried to work out a compromise, compromise. I totally messed it up the same way Eli did, and I have lived in regret of that ever since. I was 17, I was a part of this church church. I was part of their youth group, it was a big youth group. I was the worship leader for the youth group, which when you're 17, you know, feels really cool. I was involved in the student ministry team. I was inviting some friends from school to church. One of them became a Christian. I was everything a Christian parent would hope to see in their son who was a senior in high school. At the same time, I started dating a girl who was also a Christian, also went to the youth group, also a senior in high school and all the things that you would fear as a Christian parent when your senior in high school starts dating a Christian girl, all those things happened. We threw purity to the wayside. We did all the stuff you're not supposed to do until marriage. We did it all before marriage. And I had one foot with the church and one foot with this secret sin that nobody knew about and I lived my life like that for like a year until it fell apart everything went bad and I didn't start walking with God then that was then when I things really got bad and I really walked away from God not that that wasn't before but I'm saying my whole life fell apart after that so anyways here's the thing in that moment when I was dating her my heart was aligned with God's heart I felt terrible in my heart. Every time I was like, this is wrong. I know this is wrong. I feel guilty, I feel terrible. I felt in my heart everything God wanted me to feel about what was going on. My mind was aligned with God's mind. I didn't try to rationalize it and say, you know, it's fine, we'll get married someday, blah, 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 blah. I was like, I know this is wrong. I've got no doubt. I know the Bible too well. And my speech was in line with God's speech. We'd talk about it. And I'd say, we should not be doing this. And she'd say, we should not be doing this. And then we just would. It never turned into action. It never turned into action. I never just ended the relationship or went to the youth pastor I was working for and said, I need help with this. Or went to my parents or talked to anyone about it. I just kept it all a secret. And I have regretted it ever since. And it's caused just terrible, terrible issues in my life. I remember when I came on staff at iPoint, I was 28, I was still single, and my life had been cleaned up by that point in terms of my lifestyle, but I remember I was living with the Gibsons right when I moved here, and Nick said to me, you are single because there's something wrong with you, but I don't know what it is, (laughs) which at the time I thought was really rude. But he was 100% right. I didn't even make the connection. It took some really intense counseling when me and Joanna started dating. But I had run from every serious relationship that came along. Every time there was a girl that would have been a good fit, as soon as we got close to getting serious, I bailed. I ran because I had so much brokenness and pain and unhealed stuff from this thing. And I was living in regret. And I regret it. Ever since God redeems it God uses it The story has been helpful for some people But I still regret it I would still take it back Even this day I wish that none of that ever happened In a conflict between God and people It's the doing that makes the difference It's not what you believe It's not what you feel It's not what you say It's the doing that makes the difference And you will always regret not doing the doing Not doing the doing part God knows the difference. Today's Father's Day, as many of you know. And this was so, uh, this was so crazy as we were preparing this ser- all these sermons as Nick is going, We realized that on Father's Day, we were doing a story about a dad and two sons, Eli, Hoffney, and Phinehas. And the kid's pastor was giving the message. And my whole job is dealing with Eli's and Hoffney's and Phinehas's all week long, that's what I do, that's my job. So I actually think the most important thing to hear from the story is for dads. Originally the whole sermon was just gonna be for dads and then we decided that we should make it a little broader and kind of for everybody but I wanna say a couple of the things that I was gonna say when this was gonna be all about dads. This is what we learned from Eli and his interaction with his sons. This is what Eli messed up but this is what we can learn from his mistake the greatest gift you can give your family is loving God more than your family. As a dad, or a future dad, or a potential dad, the greatest gift you can give your family is loving God more than your family. The greatest gift you can give your kids is loving God more than your kids. If Eli had fired the sons that would have been their greatest shot at redemption because they would have said, wait a minute, our dad's not just believing this stuff with his heart and his mind and his mouth. He's actually living it. Maybe we got to change. And I know that God said, you know, it was too late for them, but God has said that in the Old Testament and then came back around. That was their best shot all along was if Eli had said, I'm going to love God more than my family. That would have been the greatest thing he could do for his family. My dad was far from perfect. He uh, became a Christian later in life, from a wild life before. And I mean, whatever you think when I say wild, it was wilder than that. So my whole childhood was watching my parents learn to walk with Jesus. And they, in those early years, they would say they wish they did some things differently. Just like every parent says, they would say, we do not do that perfectly. So I don't want you to hear me say, I had some perfect dad or perfect parents or anything like that. But my dad gave me this gift. My dad gave me this gift because his life had been radically transformed. He loved God, he loved us, he loved me, he loved me so much. But I knew if it came down to me or God, he loved God more than me. This is how my dad taught me that the Bible was important. He pulled me over, Sitting at the kitchen table, he pulled me over, he handed me the Bible, he pointed to Colossians chapter 1, and he said, tell me if I mess up. And then he just started saying it, speaking it from memory. Colossians, I don't know how far he got, but it was a lot, enough for me to go as a kid, this book must be important. My dad's memorizing it. That's how I learned the Bible was important, because my dad loved the Bible, and he loved reading it, and he loved memorizing it, and he wasn't saying, okay, I gotta pass this thing on to my son that I'm not living. He was living it. This is how I learned how to lead people to Jesus. And I'm not saying I'm an expert at leading people to Jesus. I wish I was a lot better, and I'm trying to learn more about how God uses people to show him who he is, because I want people to see Jesus for who he really is. But I learned the foundation of that from my dad we weren't allowed to play video games at my house and my parents said it was because they were bad for you and they were too expensive i don't know which one it really was it seemed like a little bit of a double standard there but we didn't have video games until this guy paul started coming around paul had long hair glasses or cologne my dad didn't wear cologne i didn't know why my dad didn't wear cologne and paul did Still haven't quite figured out why some guys wear cologne and some guys don't. Not right or wrong. Either way, anyways. (laughs) Paul would come over with his Nintendo 64. Anyone remember Nintendo 64? Old video game system. We played Mario Kart, which is a game where you race around on animals. And it's a fun game, fun game. And. We'd play Mario Kart, and I'm like a little kid, right? My motor skills are not even formed yet. And he would beat me every single time. He even, I was playing one time, he walked away for five minutes and was talking to my dad, having fun, you know, having a great time. I could see that they were friends. Walks back, beats me. I've been racing the whole time, he still beat me. And in that moment, I was like, Paul is the man. He's so good at Mario Kart, so much better than me. But here's what was going on in the background of all this. My dad had led him to Christ. He did not believe in Jesus before, and my dad had showed him who Jesus was, led him into a relationship with Jesus, and his wife did not like that. Not my dad's wife, Paul's wife. Paul's wife did not like that. She did not believe in Jesus. So their marriage was crumbling around him. And my parents wanted to give him a place where he could be loved and cared for and safe. That's why he was coming over all the time, playing video games and playing N64. And two things happened. One, I realized that this guy that I thought was so cool and so good at Mario Kart, he was following my dad and he was following him to Jesus. And my dad became way cooler in my head. But also, that's the first thing. The second thing is that I learned it takes sacrifice to give your life to Jesus. Because I watched my dad sacrificing our family time to bring someone into our home who didn't know Jesus and who found Jesus. And I realized it took sacrifice to follow Jesus because this guy was giving up his marriage, giving up the happiness of his marriage to walk with God. My dad didn't sit me down and tell me that. He didn't say, look, you've got to be willing to give up things to follow Jesus. He didn't say, look, part of being a disciple is to go and make disciples. He just lived it. He lived it, and I learned that from watching him. And I knew that if there was a conflict, I wouldn't have said this at the time, but if there was a conflict between me and God, my dad was going to pick God every time. Every single time. And that helped me pick God. Over the years, I knew my dad really believed this. And it helped me to give my life back to God after years of walking away. The greatest gift you can give your family is to love God more than your family. To live out what it means to be a faithful priest to God. To lead sinful people to a forgiving God to love God with all that you are, to dedicate all of your energy to him. If you do that, man, when I meet dads that I can tell love God, I'm never worried about their kids. I'm never worried about them because I know they're getting the best shot they have at seeing God for who he really is. Here's what I want to do to close. I want to challenge you to do a few things. Remember, it's the doing that matters. It's the doing that makes the difference. So you can write these down or take a picture with your phone or just internalize them. This is what you gotta do. One is to first ask yourself a few questions. Is there a current conflict between a person and God in your life? Just start by admitting it to yourself. I love God, I care about God, I know what's right, I know what's wrong, but this person is calling me to something that I know is not right. Maybe a boss, or a coworker, or a friend, or a spouse, or some old voice from your past, or some imaginary voice in your head, but you're caught between, this is what God wants for my life, I know it's what he wants for my life, this is what this person wants. Is that conflict happening right now? For most of you, it probably is on some level. Second, what does that person want you to do? What does that voice want you to do? What are you caught in between? Admit it to yourself. Just say it to yourself. Start there. This is the easy part. But it doesn't help you to not even realize what's going on in your mind or in your heart. Just say, that person wants me to do this. Then I want to ask you this. Who are you going to talk to about this? What if Eli had a friend? What if Eli had somebody that could go and say, hey, I've got a tough decision right now. What should I do? Maybe someone would have said, hey, have you thought about just firing him? Have you thought about that? We can only do this in community. We can only do this together. We're Right now, High Point has about 650 adults coming on Sunday morning in this service, not even counting kids, 650 adults. We have four pastors on staff. So we would love to walk through this with you, whatever you're going through, and all of us are walking multiple people through it during the week where we're sitting down with people who are in this conflict, and we're trying to... Help them learn to walk it out, to choose God over people. But if God is going to really move in our church, we have to learn to walk it out together. And for some of you, that might be your thing that you need to do today, that you're actually doing okay. You've chosen God and there's no big conflict right now, but there's somebody you can walk this out with. There's somebody in your life in this conflict that you can reach out to and say, hey, I want to come alongside you. I want to come alongside you and help you figure this out. And then lastly, you got to do the doing. You got to do the doing part. There's no way around that. There's no way to trick God. There's no way to fake him out. At the end of the day, it won't matter what you thought in your head. It won't matter what you felt in your heart. It won't matter what you said in your mouth. It will only matter what you did. Because in a conflict between God and people, it's the doing that makes the difference. Let me pray. God, thank you so much for this group of people. I thank you for the love that they have for you. I thank you for so many of them who take so seriously what it means to walk with you, to follow you, to give up their lives for you. God, I thank you for the faithfulness represented in this room. I thank you that so many of them have sacrificed so much for you and have given so much for you and who know that this is how you work, that you want our lives, you want all of us, that there's no other... No other way to follow Jesus. But God, I also pray for the people in this room who that they're feeling the pain right now and they know that they've got a difficult decision to make or maybe they already feel like they've messed it up too much. God, I thank you that you can redeem any situation, that you can work in our lives. And God, I ask that you would give them the strength to choose you, that they would see you for who you are, that they would see the beauty of your son Jesus who gave his life for us who gave it all for us so that we could know him. God, I pray for any person in this room who's on the fence, that they would know someday they're going to look back and they're going to have to look back on whatever they decided to do, that they either chose to follow you even though their mind was conflicted about it, even though their heart was conflicted about it, even though their speech was conflicted about it, they chose to follow you. God, I pray for the people in that boat that they would have that vision of their future that someday they will look back and say, I made the hard decision to follow Jesus. God, we ask that you bless us, that we would know you more deeply. And God, we worship you now. Let's all stand up. Let's all